it's always interesting to come into the hall after being in here for sittings and you come in for a talk and it's sort of like a bomb has dropped in the middle of the room or a big boulder and everybody sort of splashed out to the sides. I hope it hasn't been too much of an explosion. I wanted to talk tonight about right effort and the fruits of our practice of loving-kindness. And I thought I'd take up a little bit where Sally last, left off last night in her talk on the hindrances, particularly in relation to the last hindrance of doubt. Because what I've heard often over these days of interviews and the questions in the hall is that for people who have done even a lot of Vipassana practice in the past, and maybe especially for people who have done a lot of Vipassana practice, when you come into metta practice, a lot of doubt tends to come up about what this practice is for and why we're doing it this way and why all this emphasis on the phrases, it sounds so busy and it's so forceful. And it was actually just the same for me when I took up the metta practice. I'd been doing Vipassana practice for probably 18 years or something like that. And I did my first intensive metta retreat and I felt like a complete beginner. It reminded me actually of how I'd felt when I started Vipassana. I came in, I didn't really know the techniques and the practices, I didn't know where it would lead. I didn't know so well how to work with my wandering mind and the different hindrances that came up. And I felt really adrift. It threw me back into beginner's mind in a way that really kind of shook me up. It didn't feel comfortable at all. I didn't know what to do in my practice. I didn't know if it would work for me. That was my particular form of doubt. I didn't know if I could do it or if it would happen for me. So all these questions that come in the early days of a metta retreat, I can really relate to personally. And this factor of doubt, as Sally said, is such an important one because if we kind of stop there, then it keeps us from making the effort that deepens our practice. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in a retreat up in Santa Rosa with a young Tibetan Lama teacher that has been one of my primary teachers for the last seven years. The teacher named Sokni Rinpoche, I know that some of you have met him. Toward the end of the retreat, we were having a discussion on doubt, this quality of the doubting mind. And one of the students told a story that I thought was uh, quite revealing. He said he was a high school math teacher, and he was offering a number of courses this one semester, and a student came up to him at the start of the semester and said, well, I'm thinking about signing up for your course on calculus, but I don't know if it will really help me. I don't know if it will do what I want it to do. And he got all enthused. He's a bright young mind. I can turn her on to math. There aren't so many bright young minds into math these days, probably. And so he gave her this, you know, glowing pitch and he said, look, I've got seven kinds of problems right here in my mind that calculus can solve that nothing else can't. Let me tell you about one of them. He went into this detail, said this is a really helpful problem for aerodynamic engineers and for people who are designing bridges and there's no way you can solve it except through calculus. And she said, well, that's very nice, but um, (laughs) how can I know that if I take this course... I'll learn how to solve that problem. And he was stumped, you know, he'd never heard a question like that before. And he said, well, you have to trust me. And she said, but before I can take the course, I have to know that for myself. I can't just take your word for it. And so they discussed back and forth a little bit and she dropped the course. She couldn't be convinced. She couldn't get past that initial doubt to give it a try. The Tibetan teacher's comment on this exchange was, that's a good story, but it's a bad ending. (laughs) Said, um, it's kind of like a European movie. (laughs) So, he's getting pretty tuned into the Western culture, as you can tell. So hopefully in this movie, because it's in California, you know, we're... (laughs) Close enough to Hollywood, the ending is going to be different. We'll, we'll give it a try. So what I'd like to talk about tonight is how this practice works, something about the mechanics of the practice, what we're doing with all these phrases and 
all this activity and where it leads. One way of talking about why we do this practice is to bring into our spiritual life what my Tibetan teacher and what I would call the juice in our practice. There are all these wonderful, sweet, juicy qualities of the heart within us. Qualities like love, and compassion, and devotion, and warmth, and dedication, and sincerity, and friendliness, humor, and kindness. There are all these qualities that are latent within every one of us. They're all part of our human nature. And the question is, in our spiritual life, how do we activate them? How do we bring those so that they're a living force in our lives? Because if we don't, if we ignore that side of our being, the spiritual path can become quite dry and quite arid, quite intellectually satisfying, but rather sterile. And without that real heart quality of openness and connection, love. So I would say that we do the metta practice because in our tradition, it's the way to the juice in our life. It's the way to juice up our spiritual practice. So it is the avenue for us for all those sweet qualities like devotion and compassion and love and warmth and so on. This is the doorway in. For some people, as as I've observed it, just doing the Vipassana practice can be, in some ways, enough. People who come from a very emotional temperament, maybe those who were in Italy in their last lifetime or (laughs) Tibet, seem to open up in that way just through the Vipassana practice alone, and that sweetness and the juice start to come through. But for myself, I came from a background, my major in college was physics and my minor was math, where my head had been trained much more thoroughly than my heart ever had. And when I came into meditation practice, I tended to, I won't say approach it in the same way, But that emphasis or imbalance in me sort of continued. And for me, the metta practice has been a really important part of my whole unfolding. Just to authenticate this, several people who are teachers here have actually told me they think I've softened over the years since I've been doing metta practice. So I figure that's a pretty good compliment because I can be pretty feisty in meetings. And they've seen that. In our tradition, the Theravada tradition, we talk about two kinds of practitioners of Vipassana. We talk about, in the tradition, the wet and the dry practitioners. And the dry practitioners are people who have completed, you could even say, journeyed or completed their training in Vipassana without undertaking the concentration practices, of which metta, as you know, is one. The wets in this lingo, are those who have done vipassana in complement with a concentration practice. Because traditionally the concentration practices have been the ones that have unlocked in the early um, deepening of concentration such qualities as happiness and rapture and bliss. So concentration has always been a path within our tradition for touching off some of that, some of those sweet qualities. This Tibetan teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, was giving us, at the end, in his closing, he was sort of giving us heart advice. This is the advice that a teacher gives before they send you off in the world, knowing that they won't see you for another year or so. So his parting words to us went something like this. He always tells us, please be normal. (laughs) He said, don't let your meditation practice make you more strange. Because then if you go out in the world and you're really strange and people ask you what you're involved with and you say Buddhist meditation, they're going to think, oh, I'm going to stay away from that stuff. So I don't want to get more strange. But he said, please be normal. And his final words were, be a normal, wise, juicy person. I think this was beautiful advice. I'm sort of working on it myself. 
The wisdom part, you could say, is our vipassana practice. Just seeing things as they are, seeing the impermanent, empty nature of things. The juicy part is our metta practice, that unfolding of the heart. The normality, I think, might be our psychological training. I'm not quite sure. But I will just say that um, there was a conference here about a month ago, I'll talk about it a little later, of the three main traditions of Buddhism in the West, the Theravada tradition, the Zen, and Vajrayana, was held in this room. There were 220 teachers here for about five days. And I was really touched by a lot of the people in the conference, and there were very, very strong dedicated practitioners from all three traditions. But what I did come to feel about the Vipassana group in general is that we have a beautiful normality. We're kind of very down-to-earth and practical, and I really appreciate that in our tradition. We're also not afraid of hard work. If you really want to kind of see the effect of this juiciness of heart, I'd encourage you to hang out with some people who've done it for a long time. Every May, this Thai teacher comes to Spirit Rock named Ajahn Jemnian. Ajahn Jemnian started doing the metta practice when he was quite young, and he became a master of it, and has taught it all through his life. He's now about in his mid-60s. And he is one of the happiest people I have ever seen. We bring him into the meditation hall, and whether there are 10 people there or 100 people there, He's just happy to talk Dharma all day long with whoever shows up. The only way we get him out of the hall is to serve him lunch, and then he goes in the, in the meadow. He's got so much energy and so much joy. I've never seen anything like it. We'll sometimes say, well, Ajahn Jamnian, would you like to go out today? Would you like to see the Golden Gate Bridge or the ocean or Point Reyes? And he'll say, are there people who'd like to hear the Dharma? his face kind of lights up then I'll talk to them about the Dharma and he said if there's no one who wants to hear the Dharma I'm happy to just sit there he said but if you want to take me somewhere that's okay too I'll be happy whatever you want me to do and he really he shows it he just beams he actually said that he hasn't had any anger in 25 years and I I tend to believe it He he has that kind of nature he has that kind of vibe So the juice is, I think, what we're all aiming for in the long term and probably why we were drawn to do the metta practice in the first place. But when we come to a retreat like this, that juice isn't so apparent up front. It just seems like a lot of hard, slogging, tough work. You know, say the phrases again and again and again. Bring up the benefactor, bring up the friend, bring up the neutral person. It reminded me a little bit of when I was in Boy Scouts and I had to earn a merit badge. And this merit badge was in camping and outdoor life. One of the things that we had to do to earn the badge was to start a fire without matches. And I thought, well, I know people used to be able to do that, but didn't that die off with the Native Americans? You know, I don't don't think European Americans know how to do that anymore. But I read the book and my father helped me and you, make a, you take a dry piece of wood and you make a little hole in it, just about the roundness of a finger. And then you take a, a slim stick. You can take the branch of a tree that's dry and you cut off all the sort of knots on it. And if you can, file it down at one end so that it, the innards are exposed a little bit. You go underneath the bark. Then you cut some wood shavings and you put them in that little round hole you've made in the dry piece of wood. You set the stick into the wood shavings in the wood and then you twirl it back and forth and back and forth quickly. And what happens is that the heat of the friction of the stick against those wood shavings eventually makes a little puff of smoke. And then you get really excited, you know, because I didn't think it was going to happen. My hands were getting sore. I didn't think anything was going to happen. And then you keep twirling faster and faster, and then you see a little tiny flame pop up. And then a little faster and the flame spreads around and when all the wood shavings are on fire, then you can add more wood shavings or little twigs and then bigger twigs and then you have a fire. So I was delighted to see that this skill had not been lost from our civilization and it really restored my faith. But it took a while. And while I was doing it, while I was rubbing the stick, my hands were getting sore. 
I thought my hands were going to catch on fire before the wood did. So my hands were sore, and it wasn't feeling very good, and it was a lot of work, and I wasn't sure anything would happen. But in time, that curl of smoke came up, and the fire started. This is a lot like our metta practice. We just keep going and going and going. You know, The phrases are like twirling the stick, and it doesn't seem like anything's happening. Few people have said that in interviews. I'm really diligent with the phrases, but nothing's happening. And it may not seem like anything's happening for a while, but it took that early twirling to make enough heat for the fire to start. And the same with our metta practice. Eventually, that sort of flame, that warmth, starts, and then it can sustain itself. So the practice just generates its own momentum, although it's very hard in the beginning. It starts with a lot of hard work. Some people have said that the phrases actually seem to get in the way of the loving-kindness. A number of people have come and said, I can really kind of call forth that feeling of metta, but when I put the phrases in, it seems to obstruct it, or it gets too much involved with thinking, and I lose touch with the feeling. So I want to talk a little bit about how to work with the phrases in a way that can support the feeling so that you don't feel like you're dampening that initial feeling. One way to do it is that before you say the phrase, get in touch with the silence. Be aware that the phrase is coming out of a deep silence that holds your feeling of loving-kindness. This silence actually is an aspect of emptiness. It's the emptiness at the ear door. And if you're in touch with that emptiness, then the words are just a tiny drop of thinking in the vastness of that silence. They don't occupy the whole stage. So that has been helpful for me. Then there's another way I'd like to describe that's actually what I consider a really artful way to do the practice. I talked about this a little bit in interview groups today. I think it's a beautiful way to do the practice, and it requires a certain steadiness of attention. So I'll just describe it, and then you can see if it fits for you. When I'm able to, what I will do at the start of a set of phrases is I'll rest the attention in the center of my chest, in the heart center, and get in touch with that physical sensation And then that will be the doorway where I'll feel any emotions like metta or anything else that comes through. I'll let myself feel them in the heart center. So that's the first focus. Then I bring up an image of the subject. It could be myself or another person. And I see that image as clearly as I can. If I can, I'll make it so it's like the person is in front of me. Now, I didn't start off being able to visualize. I was weak in that field. So it took me a while. It was hard work to bring up these images, but I found when I could bring the image there, it really made the person much more alive for me, more alive than saying their name, and far more alive than just saying the phrases without the image. So I would have an image of the person just in front of me, and then this is kind of the key moment. I would let myself feel that I cared about them and that that caring took some kind of intention like just as simple as, I hope you're happy. I hope you're well. I hope life is really going good for you. But it wasn't verbal. It was just a momentary feeling of caring about their welfare. Just a flicker of that intention. That little flicker where the mind is just leaning toward and interested in their well-being, that actually is metta. It may not feel like very much. It can just start off as a little spark. It's kind of like that little curl of smoke from the wood shavings. But that actually is loving-kindness. So if that flicker of caring is there, that's really what we're offering to the person in our metta practice. And that little flicker of caring is the germ or the seed that the whole practice then grows around. So you don't need to try to force anything more than that. You don't need to try and be deeply in love with them. You don't need to... Actually, 
you don't even need to like the person. This came as a revelation to me when I was doing the difficult person one year. You don't actually even have to like the person. All you have to have is that enough interest to care about their welfare. The whole practice will grow from that. Upandita Sayadaw used to say something like, just incline the mind to metta. Don't try to force anything. Just let the mind incline in that direction, and that will be enough. Then once you can touch just that little flicker, let the phrase carry the intention. So the phrase actually comes out of the intention of metta toward them. It comes out of your caring. So you're not trying to put it on, you're not trying to put the phrase on top of the metta, but you're letting the metta kind of give birth to the phrase, and then you offer the phrase to the other person like a gift. It's a real gift to care about somebody and to express it with those words. So with each phrase, you can feel that it's just um, riding on your intention so that the phrase and the metta feeling go together toward the person. So if you, if you don't actually get in touch with that intention, that's okay too. Let the phrase, let the, just let the phrase go. And also you can trust that in time the phrases will evoke the feeling. These phrases have been tested for 2,500 years and they are really appropriate for this particular Brahma Vihara. As you'll see when we move to compassion and uh, sympathetic joy and equanimity, the different phrases will evoke those feelings. These phrases evoke the metta feeling. So it's almost like I'm just going to pretend. Even though I don't feel it exactly, I'll just pretend and I'll say the phrase. And this reminds me of an old saying from the Tibetans again, the Kadampa masters who were an ancient lineage in Tibet had this saying that if you don't have teeth, just chew with your gums. So I think about this often when I'm sort of fabricating the phrases, and I can't marry them with the metta intention. I don't have teeth at that point, but I can still chew with my gums. Then after you've sort of offered this phrase as a gift to the other person, take a moment and let yourself feel its resonance. Again, if you rest your attention in the heart center, you can let the phrase reverberate for just a couple of seconds in your heart and feel how that feels, the safety, the happiness the health, the ease of life. It feels good. So let it, let that bell ring for a minute. So if your mind is steady enough, if your attention is steady enough to try it this way, I'd encourage you to practice with it and see if it's supportive for you. If you'll notice, there are actually four places your attention goes in this style of practice. The first is... Um, with the resting of the attention in the heart center. The second is the image of the subject. The third is the metta intention or flavor. And the fourth is the phrase. So this is a lot of balls. You know, you're like, if you're doing that, you're a juggler who's got four balls up in the air at that point. This takes a lot of concentration, but because it's a stretch, it builds concentration. So the more of these elements that you can actually include, the more it shows that you're developing concentration and it's strengthening, it's developing that quality. It's like you're working out at the gym and you've just upped it from 10 pounds to 20 pounds, you know, on the pull down or whatever. So you'll build your concentration in that way. But don't expect that you'll always be able to keep all four balls going. When you're first learning to juggle, two is a lot. And then if you can add a third, you're a long way along. And if you can do four, you know, that's really, really good juggling. So the same here. If you just connect with one of those, that's great. You're into the practice. If you can do two or three or four, all the better. But realize that this condition of being able to keep all four balls connected is something like a peak experience in meditation. And it won't always be there. So just let the concentration come and go. See where you are at any given time. And any combination is fine. 
So the first fruit of the practice is the feeling or the deepening of the loving kindness or the metta. And it develops in a gradual way. It's hard to see any shift over one or two or three days. Someone was in a discussion group this morning who said that she'd done a month-long period of loving-kindness, and it had made a big and lasting shift in her life and in her practice. So it's something that builds gradually, but you all know that that's also the way that mindfulness develops in Vipassana. The first few times you meditate, it doesn't feel like anything's happening. Remember that, why should I be with the breath? Nothing's coming. But little by little, that builds. As the Buddha said in the Dhammapada, don't disregard the accumulation of wholesomeness, saying this will come to nothing. By the gradual falling of raindrops, the jar is filled. So just like mindfulness works in Vipassana practice, metta works in this practice. It's a beautiful quality that develops little by little by little. And eventually we want to be able to access that feeling of metta wherever we are and whatever our experience is. Just like in mindfulness, we want to be able to be with whatever's happening for us. So essentially, we want to be able to find this heart of metta, of loving kindness, independent of the circumstances of our life. This is a powerful quality if we can do that. And what, one of the things it says to me is that the Buddha encouraged us to rest our hearts in loving kindness regardless of the outside situation. Meaning if somebody's being friendly to us, we can respond from loving kindness. If somebody's being indifferent, we can respond from loving kindness. If somebody's being aggressive, we can respond from loving kindness. So that we're not just driven by the external situation, but we find an inner freedom and an inner friendliness that's independent of that. When we start our Vipassana practice, we start with the breath in our teaching. We open to sounds and body and emotions and thoughts and all our experience, the vast spaciousness and consciousness. And we develop the practice based on the subjects that we find most useful. Most of us spend a lot of time with the breath and body and space. And at first, we think that these choices we're making are really important ones that they're the key to the practice. When I was a beginner, I thought Vipassana meditation was about being with the breath. You know, I thought that defined it. I thought that's what it was. And it took me a while before I realized that the thing that we're with isn't so important. What's important is the mindfulness. And we just pick these different focuses as skillful means to develop the quality of mindfulness. Because it's the mindfulness that frees us. Is mindfulness that liberates, not the breath, not sounds, not the body. So similarly with our metta practice, we work with different individuals to generate the metta. And in the beginning, it seems like the people are really important. And they certainly have their own role to play. Each one brings a different flavor. But the key, again, is the quality of metta, more than the specific individual. So what we're really looking to do is to stabilize our heart in the experience of loving-kindness so that that becomes the place that we live from more and more and more of the time. As we do that, we find the heart is becoming more responsive, becoming more sensitive, it's becoming more open, it's becoming juicier. And then we can start to see where the tracks of Vipassana and Metta come together. They seem like kind of different tracks right now. The practices are really different. And it seems like sometimes they're going in not such similar directions. But over time, what we want to do is to converge the two practices so that from the Vipassana, we bring out this full presence in each moment that's in touch with our experience. And from the metta side, we bring this openness of heart, this kind of friendly relation to life. So you could say they kind of come together in this quality of a warm attention, of a mindfulness that is colored or flavored with the quality of loving-kindness or friendliness.
But different individuals do have a role to play, a different role to play in the opening. And it's important to understand that too. For example, the relationship to the benefactor can be an enormously inspiring one. When I was doing my benefactor practice, and the first time I did the metta practice, I stayed with the benefactor for three weeks, became very powerful for me. I felt that I was doing a kind of, uh, you ever watch Star Trek? Remember how um, Spock could do this Vulcan mind meld with people? where he would just put his head next to theirs and their minds would mingle. I felt that was happening with my benefactor, that as I carried the person in my heart over those three weeks, I really felt like all their good qualities were starting to come out of my heart. I felt like I had sort of united with my benefactor in that relationship. This seems a little alien to our tradition, but actually in the Pali texts, you can find talk of this kind of relationship. The Buddha himself said that those who have sufficient faith in and love for the Tathagata, which is another name for himself, are liberated by faith. Those who have sufficient faith in and love for the Tathagata are liberated by faith. So this devotional quality goes back a long way in our tradition. My teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, was a student of a real master of the Tibetan practices named Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, who died uh, just last summer. And the last time that uh, my teacher was seeing Kempo, the older teacher, Kempo gave him some hard advice also as he was leaving. It was very simple and very direct advice. He said to him, love me. Those were his parting words. Love me. That was a really beautiful statement to me of the kind of quality that can be there in the teacher-student relationship. Love me not because he needed any kind of adulation, because he wasn't interested in that at all, but because it was a way for my teacher to continue opening his heart and developing the juice in his own practice. There's this beautiful book out um, that I just read this past week called Sorrow Mountain. And it was written by a Sangha member um, named Dady Donnelly, who lives in the East Bay. She met a Tibetan nun named Ani Pachin, who's now, I think, 67 years old, living in Dharamsala. Ani Pachin grew up as the daughter of a warrior chieftain living in the rugged country of East Tibet living out in uh, Kham. And her father was a very fierce man and the chief of a large group, but um, also a devoted practitioner. So she grew up with a great devotion to the Buddha Dharma. But when the Chinese invaded Tibet in 1949, uh, after a few years, they came and they took over uh, her region of the country And she and a few other people escaped to the hills and undertook guerrilla warfare against the Chinese for a number of years. They were actually aided by the CIA. They were getting food drops and drops of guns and ammunition for some time. But eventually the Chinese covered the whole territory, even those remote wilds, and she was captured. And because she was known to have been the daughter of a chieftain and to be leading the forces, uh, she was imprisoned and uh, tortured quite routinely uh, on the pretext of trying to get information about the guerrilla war. So she was years in prison undergoing um, steady beatings and torture for one nine-month period because she had been flippant in her response to a guard. She was thrown into solitary confinement in a room that no light entered. So for nine months, she was in this completely dark enclosure, um, did not see another person except the guard's hand, slipping the watery gruel to her a couple of times a day, and didn't see any light for nine months. Her devotion to the Dharma was unwavering through that time. While she was in her cell for nine months, she decided that she would take that time to undertake her 100,000 prostrations 
which is one of the preliminary practices in Tibetan Buddhism. And she actually, at the end, she started to pray that she wouldn't be released from that confinement until she completed her prostrations. After 21 years in prison, she was released and started to demonstrate against the Chinese authorities in Lhasa. But as you may recall, in the late 80s, there was quite a crackdown on the demonstrators. Monks were killed and beaten. And as one of the leaders, she was um, being pursued by the authorities, so she escaped to India. And she finally got to meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And in meeting him, she got to tell him her whole story of the flight from her village, the guerrilla war, her capture, the beatings and the torture, and her years in prison. And she, she said that as she was telling this story, often both she and the Dalai Lama would break down in tears hearing it. But all her trials only seemed to strengthen her devotion and her commitment to the Dharma. Somebody asked her years later, what kept you alive? What kept you going during all those years? And she said, I wanted to live to be able to see His Holiness in person. The figure of the Dalai Lama was so meaningful for her. And she finally did. So just one other little story from this teacher's conference. The Dalai Lama, as a lot of you know, was here about a month ago in this very room, um, speaking to the teacher's conference. He was sitting about up there in the center. And for me, it was really the high point of our time together. It was just such a privilege to be able to hang out with him and just to experience his being. I just want to relate one of the conversations that came through just to give you a flavor of his character. The conference was organized around different topics and different teachers would present their take from a Western viewpoint on a topic and then the Dalai Lama would sometimes respond or if he didn't have anything to say, he'd be silent. So Suryadas, Lama Suryadas, who's a Westerner teaching in the Tibetan lineage, was talking to the group and to His Holiness on the theme of how Buddhism is sort of coming into the mainstream now in the West, how it's becoming enough widespread, and it's even getting a little bit chic. You know, Hollywood is sort of starting to get into Buddhism. And when that happens, you know, we can all watch out. But Suryadas said, well, you know, there are dangers in being really popular because it might get misrepresented, it might lose some of the depth of its teachings. And they said, and your holiness, you're the biggest popularizer of them all. So what advice do you have for us in the West? The Dalai Lama thought for a minute and he said, people call me many different things. Some people say, I'm a living Buddha. And he just kind of laughed. No, I'm not. I'm not. Some people call me God King. No, I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm just a simple Buddhist monk. Simple Buddhist monk. said, other people you see, see me very differently. They call me counter-revolutionary. They call me a wolf in monk's clothing. So, you see, I have to check back to my own intention. What is my own intention? If my intention is to help beings come out of suffering, then that's what is important to me. How others see me is up to them, and I don't care. I don't care. He said that very strongly. I just don't care. And for me, it was just a really powerful moment because I could feel in both sides of that, being called the living Buddha or being called a counter-revolutionary, the responsibility that he feels as the ambassador for the Tibetan people, as the only person who can probably make a difference in their situation long-term, and the burden of that responsibility on his shoulders, and the maturing effect that that has had on him. And then to be able to come from all that weight of responsibility and say, but inwardly, I don't care. I'm free. And I felt both those at the same time, the huge burden that he bears and this massive inner freedom that he comes from. Very, very powerful and moving moment. I thought one of the best comments on him was made by Caroline Cornfield, who's Jack's daughter. 
And she was in the room videoing the conference, helping the person who was videoing it. She was his assistant. And she said about, she's 15 years old, but she's hung out around the Dharma all her life. You know, she was sort of suckled on Yucca Valley retreats. And uh, she said about the Dalai Lama, he's born anew in every moment. Now that was a really perceptive and beautiful comment. So the benefactor can reveal a lot to us about our own depth. Because all the qualities in the Dalai Lama, all the qualities in your teachers, in our teachers, are in each one of us as well. It's just a question of bringing them out, bringing them through. And then also with the other individuals, we learn about different aspects of our mind. From our friends, we might learn about the inclination to hold on, to grasp or to attach the near enemy of loving-kindness. And this is really a pointer to the force in our minds of grasping or greed, clinging. From the neutral person, which we practiced with today, we might learn about the force of ignorance. Because mostly what we do in our life, if somebody doesn't hold a charge for us one way or another, we don't take them very seriously. We don't think they're important. Oh, that's somebody I don't have to bother with. I can ignore them. When we meditate on the neutral person, we can find that those people actually are full human beings in their own right. Every being is full in his or her own right, and they're worthy of our attention too. So it cuts through the tendency to ignorance in us. And the difficult person who we'll begin to work with tomorrow can help us to find a caring even in the midst of aversion. Even if we don't particularly like someone, we find that we can get in touch with that metta anyway. So all these qualities, the uh, desire, the ignorance, and the aversion, these are the three root, what the Buddha called kilesas, or uh, defilements or distortions in our mind. And the loving-kindness practice helps us to purify all three of them through these different individuals. The other key fruit of the practice is the quality of concentration which is the translation of the Pali word samadhi. Samadhi refers to a state of mind that has become whole, that has become unified or collected, that's been gathered together. A state of mind like that becomes strong, becomes firm, becomes less wavery, more unshakable. And we develop it by bringing our whole attention to whatever we do. This sense, as well as metta, bring with them a great sense of well-being and contentment. With the feeling of metta, there's a richness, there's a sweetness, and with the quality of samadhi, there's a steadiness, an unshakability. And with these two together, there's a sense of really it being enough. There's a sense of deep satisfaction. My Tibetan teacher happens to be Sokni Rinpoche III, which meant that he had two previous incarnations. And the first incarnation, who was known for his great effort, had a poem that had a line I particularly liked. It said, There is nothing else to search for. Rest in your natural face. There is nothing else to search for. Rest in your natural face. This is somewhat the flavor when the loving kindness and the samadhi come together. There's a feeling that we're just held by that combination, that that is enough. When both of those factors are strong, the hindrances that Sally talked about last night get suspended. They can't arise in a mind that is held in that container of sufficient samadhi, especially with the metta. And then when the hindrances aren't disturbing our minds, we can see things more clearly. We can see the vastness of the love. These are really special moments in the practice when it comes together in this way, when you can connect with a few of these qualities at the same time and the mind isn't so disturbed. It's rare. And sometimes we think, oh, this isn't that important because it's just a passing meditation state. But actually what these moments are revealing to us are the depth of our true nature. 
This is the feeling, it's kind of a preview of the deepening of our spiritual life. These kinds of uh, feelings, these experiences come more and more. They become more our resting place, more our home in practice. So not to take them lightly. They may be rare. They are usually rare in retreat, but they're very important. They're real pointers on the path. And the metta and samadhi support one another. Metta, through the force of love, tends to bring the mind together. Love brings about a union. The samadhi brings about a steadiness. So the metta encourages the samadhi, and the samadhi intensifies the metta. When the mind becomes concentrated, the feelings go deeper. The experiences are more deeply felt. So these two really help each other. And that's why this practice is such a potent way to develop a practice of samatha, of tranquility. So the metta practice can bring us these beautiful fruits of both loving kindness and concentration, but one key is our motivation, what the spirit is that we approach the practice with. I was practicing at um, IMS in my first extended period of loving kindness, and in the first 10 days of the retreat, the practice was going fairly well, and I thought, wow, this is just going to keep getting better and better. I'm glad I signed up for this, because all my friends had told me about, you know, it's really different from Vipassana practice. It can get really sweet. Actually, they didn't say it can get really sweet. They said it does get really sweet. And it was set up some expectations. So I was about 10 days in, and I was starting to feel the mind calming down and starting to feel some metta coming through. And I was really enjoying the practice. And then something external happened that sort of shook up the conditions. Because concentration is based on conditions like all impermanent states. And I completely lost it. All that nice stuff that had been coming together was just gone, scattered to the four winds. And what did I do? Did I see it clearly with wisdom and let go, understanding the nature of impermanence? (laughs) Of course not. I clung like crazy. Because this was actually my first really deep taste of this kind of feeling of metta and concentration together. So I tried so hard to get it back. You know, I said the phrases with even more dedication and even more fervor. And I pressed myself to say more of them in each sitting, you know, so that it would happen faster. And I'd work myself back into that great space that I'd fallen out of. And of course, what happened, I just tied myself up in knots. I was putting myself under so much pressure through my own greed to get back to a pleasant state that I just got full of conflict and full of tension. So it was in this stage that I went to see my teacher, who at that point was Joseph Goldstein. And I said, Joseph, it was really going well, you know, three days ago. It was really going well, and then this thing happened, and I can't get it back. You know, what's the matter? And Joseph summed up the situation really quickly because he'd, of course, done a similar thing himself at some point in his metta practice. And just very succinctly, he said one thing. He said, Guy... We don't do this practice for ourselves. It's for the other. And that just unlocked my mind. And I saw that I'd been doing a loving-kindness practice basically to make myself feel good inside. And in doing that, I'd completely lost touch with the other person, and I really stopped caring about what was going on for them because what was really important was what was happening inside my mind and body. And I'd lost the whole spirit of what the practice is about. So it woke me up. I went back. I loosened up. I started thinking about the other for a change instead of just me. And in a half a day, the practice started to settle back down. This is a really powerful teaching for me about the quality of right effort. And it really tuned into this um, stanza that I love from an Indian teacher named Shantideva. Shantideva was uh, a Buddhist practitioner in India in about 9th century AD who wrote a book called The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. This is a stanza from that guide. Whatever joy there is in this world, all comes from wanting others to be happy. And whatever sorrow there is in this world, 
all comes from wanting only myself to be happy. This was such a direct pointing to me about this truth. It's the same truth as the teachings on generosity, as the teachings on sila, that when we open and really care about another, beautiful things come within our own hearts and minds. But if we give only in order to get that blessing, it doesn't work. If we do the metta practice for another only in order to get calm, it doesn't unfold that way. We have to sincerely want to give to the other. We have to sincerely want the other to be happy. So there really has to be this approach of non-clinging through the metta practice. And that's partly why we feel all of us will say that the metta practice is not just a samatha practice, but there's a lot of wisdom that comes through too. There's a lot of understanding that comes through this practice. An understanding about the nature of the open heart, about what creates harmony between beings, about what a deep level we're connected on, and what a, on what a deep level we're essentially the same being. Whatever our outward appearance, whatever our gender, or race, or color, or social class, or age, or background, or education, underneath all these qualities of heart and mind are the same in us. And all our bodies are just minor variations on the same theme. So fundamentally we are the same organism. The metta practice is a direct path to see that kind of unity. So as we say this phrase, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, we have to offer it to the person without a lot of grasping or a lot of control. In a way, we offer it and then we surrender because it's out of our hands. It's like making a gift. We make the gift and then we don't know how it will be received. We don't know how the other person will take it. When we say the phrases, we don't know if the other person will be affected or not. We don't know if it will bring health or happiness or safety. But what we do know is if our wish is sincere, if our intention is sincere, and if it is in that caring for the other, then the practice will really unfold in us. This is what I love. It's kind of the paradox of spiritual life, whether it's in Vipassana or Metta, that we have to make this very full effort, give it everything we've got, put all our heart and soul and mind and body into it, and we don't know that we're going to get anything back. And in metta, it even goes one step further. We put everything into it, and then we give a little more away without expecting anything back. But that is exactly the place from which all the beautiful qualities, all the juicy qualities start to come through our hearts. It's in that total giving and the total surrender that the heart can really start to open because it's no longer under the pressure, it's no longer being squeezed by the force of grasping and self-interest. This is from Rumi. The way of love is not a subtle argument. The door there is devastation. Birds make great sky circles of their freedom. How do they learn it? They fall. And falling, they're given great wings. This is like our Vipassana practice and our Metta practice both. We have to open in that very surrendering kind of way. Open ourselves to the fall and then see what comes. And the beauty of our innate nature, our basic goodness, is that those are the conditions for it to flower and to manifest, to respond with these beautiful qualities of loving kindness, of compassion, of devotion, of faith, and friendliness, and humor. This is from Rilke, Reiner Maria Rilke. I believe in all that has never yet been spoken. I want to free what waits within me so that what no one has dared to wish for may for once spring clear without my contriving. 
If this is arrogant, God, forgive me, but this is what I need to say. May what I do flow from me like a river, no forcing and no holding back the way it is with children. So this is the flavor of surrender in our metta practice. It's an active practice, but there's also a very receptive side to it where we just open ourselves and wait to see what comes. That openness is really, really important. At the same time, the active side of it is doing something very powerful. And I don't know if you've reflected on this yet. When you do the loving-kindness practice with the image, as I described earlier, you're creating an image in the mind. You're bringing forth the flavor of the emotion of metta. And the thoughts in your mind are wholesome phrases. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. So at the time when the metta practice has come together in that way, you have planted in the mind the image, the metta quality, and the thought phrase. So I don't know if it sort of struck you what an incredible accomplishment that is, but basically at that time, you have shaped the mind stream. Our mind stream is basically made up of images, thoughts, and emotions. And at that time when the practice is flowing, you have filled all three of those areas with the wholesome qualities of loving-kindness. That kind of mind is removed from suffering. It's removed from disturbance. It's removed from wavering. That kind of mind is very beautifully protected and secluded. So this is a big deal. Don't be disappointed if it takes a while for all these pieces to come into place because it's actually a really audacious thing that we're doing. Who would have thought that we could find a way to fashion our whole mind stream toward a wholesome end? This is a very big deal. So be patient with yourself. If it doesn't all come together at once, it can take a while. This is very empowering and it gives, a, it gives a real sense of freedom when you start to tune into this quality of heart and mind. And this is why the Buddha called loving-kindness an immeasurable deliverance of mind, an immeasurable deliverance of heart. And he said of it that this deliverance of heart is more than 16 times greater than any worldly blessings, blessings related to worldly activities such as generosity. The heart's deliverance of loving kindness is more than 16 times greater than these worldly activities. As these beautiful, kind of juicy qualities of the heart unfold, they actually can become a path of their own. And the Buddha pointed to this also, faith being a primary one among them. Faith being this willingness to surrender and to open through that trust in our basic goodness, in the beautiful qualities of our true nature. The Buddha spoke to a monk named Pingya. Pingya, he said, other people have freed themselves by the power of faith. Vakali, Bhadravuda, and Alavi have all done this. You too should let that strength release you. You too will go to the further shore beyond the draw of death. This is just one of the promises that's opened by the development of the heart through our metta practice. This is a channel that opens to touch our basic goodness and release these liberating qualities that are there within us. So let's just sit for a minute, please. Uh, Not tonight, but tomorrow morning. Or if you'd like to come up.
Other people have freed themselves by the power of faith. You too should let that strength release you. You too will go to the further shore beyond the draw of death. So we have about uh, 30 minutes now for walking meditation, then we'll have the last sitting of the day with uh, the chanting.